0: Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to see so many of you here. I, uh, uh, th- this morning in my sermon, uh, I don't know how many of you were in the first service. Uh, if you're in the second service, I'll try to remember to say it. I have one other very odd uh, connection to St. John's Church. My former wife's grandmother owned the front pew <laughs> back when people owned pews. If that isn't a sign of the times, right? Thank God we don't do that anymore. Um, Speaking of flaunting your wealth in front of everybody. Uh, And from what I can hear, oh, that's okay I'm just trying to find a level place for it. Uh, And from what I hear, she would have been the kind of person who, if you had unintentionally wandered in and sat in her pew, she would have reminded you whose pew it was, right? Exactly. Uh, This morning, um, I I tried to come up with a title that might get some of you to come, uh, and so apparently that worked. I want to just say a little bit about where I think we are uh, as a church and where we are as a nation uh, around uh, the subject near and dear to my heart, of course, which is uh, LGBT people. Um, uh, I I think, uh, for the most part, uh, we can say that the Episcopal Church is is over this, um, which is kind of nice, uh, and uh, Luis and I were talking, oh, aren't you sweet, thank you very much, a whole chair for my coffee, <laughs> awesome. Uh, um, l- looking back, it's hard to, hard to remember what the world was like 12 years ago, right, I mean, the world has changed so much. To give you a, a sense of how the world has changed, so I was um, uh, elected and consecrated bishop in 2003. The next openly gay and partnered bishop in the Episcopal Church was elected and consecrated in 2010. And that was Mary Glasspool, uh, the suffragan bishop of, of um, Los Angeles. And in 2012, 2012 2013... 10 years after my um, election and consecration, the first openly gay and partnered bishop in the Lutheran Church was um, was uh, uh, made a bishop. So um, in 2003, the day after my consecration, or the le- day after my election, my picture was on the front page of every newspaper in the world, literally around the world. And in 2012... Um, uh, when Guy Irwin was consecrated uh, bishop in Los Angeles, for Los Angeles, his consecration didn't even make the LA Times. Now that's, that's where we came in a 10-year period. And so in one sense, the, the progress has just been breathtakingly uh, uh, swift. But let's not forget that there were people, uh, first of all, there were gay people, long before that 10-year period, Uh, and and there were even some out and organized uh, gay and lesbian people, the Daughters of Bilitis and um, uh, the Madison Society back in the 50s, people doing remarkable things. Uh, On this July 4th we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first um, public demonstration for homosexual rights. It was in front of Independence Hall in, um, in Philadelphia, 50 years ago, 1965, four years before Stonewall. One of those people marching that day was an ordained UCC minister who, and again, one of those wild coincidences, uh, is in a nursing home in Concord, New Hampshire, where my office uh, was. And so I have gotten to know him. Can you imagine, I mean, I can't imagine demonstrating in a collar in 1965 for homosexual rights. It's just an astounding thing. So on the one hand, it's been really swift. On the other hand, it's actually been going on for quite some time. So uh, the reason for the, the topic, and then I, I just want to open this up for uh, discussion. I, I just want to catch you up sort of on what I think the next front is. Uh, and, and actually, there are two of them. I think for the most part, uh, conservatives in general, and the religious right, uh, conservatives who, who base their conservatism, at least on this issue, on scripture, uh, as they interpret it, um, uh, those people, at least in private, will acknowledge that they have lost this battle around uh, uh, gay and lesbian people, um, and certainly around the marriage issue. Um, And uh, so they're going in two directions now. One is they're now going after transgender people. And we just saw this um, just, what, a week ago in Houston with the defeat of the uh, Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, or HERO, um, which had been passed and then um, uh, got put on a referendum and lost. And the uh, the slogan um, that sank that campaign was "No men in women 's restrooms uh, women 's bathrooms uh, with ads literally of young women going into a bathroom followed by a very sleazy uh, threatening uh, looking man pretending to be a woman. It is, it is such an ignorance of what uh, Transgender people are who they are, and what their experience has been, and uh, where where this particular uh, group of people is is going in our uh, in our community. Um, so it's it's just another example of the uh, of the powerful uh, picking on an already oppressed and beleaguered uh, uh, minority. It's it's just awful. Um, so I, I would just want to say in passing um, begin to learn something about transgender people if you if you get introduced to um, such a person uh, I encourage you to get to know them, it is one of the most uh, moving and powerful experiences of my whole life, however much um, courage it takes to come out as gay or lesbian it pales in comparison to the courage it takes to say to your parents, to your siblings to your spouse to your children um i have actually known myself to be the other sex um since very early in my life and i now have to do something about it so it's it's just a uh we're going to learn so much from them um and i think uh one of the things that we will learn is that in our effort to simplify life um we oversimplify it. And one of the ways we have done that is to assume that there are males and there are females. And th- those are your only two choices. And what the transgender community teaches us is that those boxes are just too small. And uh, human sexuality and human beings are just more complicated than that. And so uh, we've got a lot to learn um, uh, so that's one thing. The other, the other front right now with the religious right, uh, whom I spend um, a lot of time um, countering uh, as much as I can, my, my sort of overall uh, experiment at the Center for American Progress, which is just down the street here on H Street, um, is if the religious right has done religion in the public debates wrong, is there a right and good and appropriate way to bring religion to bear on the issues that face us, right? So that's that's kind of overall what I'm trying to do. But where it's, where it's going at the moment is um, with the so-called RIFRA laws. That is the Religious uh, Restoration, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or lovingly known as RIFRA. Um, the original uh, RIFRA Act was um, was a federal act in 1993. And it basically said that government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability. Uh, in other words, if you're, not, if you're not targeting a specific religion and trying to limit that religion uh, in a particular way, but rather you have a law that applies to everybody and then if somebody, uh, somebody uh, has to do something to comply that they don't like, uh, it'll be okay. The, the Supreme Court actually uh, struck down uh, that act uh, as a federal act that, that you couldn't um, – the, the federal government could not re- make this law for states, uh, that it would only apply uh, in federal cases. And consequently we've had twenty states to date uh, who have passed their own state rifra laws right and it, they're all basically um, uh, meant to say that uh, in order in order for a law to pass uh, the, the government uh, that affects religion, the government must establish uh, the fact that uh, it has a compelling interest to do so um, and that it has done so in the least restrictive way possible so you remember how this all played out with the hobby lobby case, right um, whether or not the uh, the mandate under the Affordable Care Act to provide uh, access to birth control uh, was uh, an infringement on on the free exercise of religion. There are a lot of things about that case that were b- both bizarre and just wrong, uh, one of which was can uh, can an a corporation exercise its freedom of religion. I mean, one has to ask where the Hobby Lobby, Inc. prays. And, and what is it? Does it kneel <laughs> when it prays? And and who does it pray to and for what? And how would you know, right? So that's one of, that's one of many things wrong with it. Um, but um, the... Uh, the court ruled that there might be a less restrictive way for the government to achieve its, uh, its intentions uh, without uh, limiting in that way. And so uh, basically what the, the, the Supreme Court said was, look, um, Hobby Lobby, uh, give, uh, give the name and address of your insurance company to the federal government, and the government will take care of it, take care of birth control from there. You don't have to have anything to do with it. What we're finding now is um, uh, individuals and and uh, uh, companies saying that's too much of a burden. That to provide a name and address of the insurance company is cooperating with the um, um, immoral um, and uh, the, the, the immoral use of uh, contraception uh, because some of those contraceptions they claim are acting as an can never get this word right. Abortifacient, I think, is the word uh, that is to say, uh, a procedure that that uh, involves abortion, not just uh, preventing fertilization. So, um, and then the the even later um, example of this is uh, probably the most famous is the uh, Kim Davis um, case in Kentucky, where she claimed that. Uh, the uh, recently passed Marriage Quality uh, Act from the uh, Supreme Court infringes upon her right to exercise her religion, which is opposed to homosexuality. So as as a, a county clerk, she does not need to sign uh, uh, marriage licenses. Um, and we're gonna, we're just going to see a ton of these. The the more conservative religious elements in our society are pouring uh, so much money into this, you, you cannot imagine it. Uh, and they will be challenged all over. We'll see the same, the same thing, you know, how this works uh, on all kinds of issues, which is that we'll get different results from different circuit courts, and ultimately uh, the Supreme Court will have to, will have to rule. Um, uh, in, in case you needed any encouragement to vote a year from now, um, the next president, whoever he or she might be, will get to appoint probably, uh, certainly one or two, maybe three, possibly even four Supreme Court justices, who uh, will shape this this nation for literally decades and maybe generations to come. So this is this is a huge issue. This is where uh, all of the um, uh, religious conservative groups are are putting all of their efforts. Um, I would argue that what they're arguing for in, in asking for an exception uh, is uh, they are arguing for a license to discriminate. And if you grant that, then where does it stop? Let's, let's remember that the uh, uh, anti-miscegenation laws, the, the uh, uh, whether or not uh, uh, two uh, two people of two different races could get married, it was all based on religion, right? Um, uh, not only that, how many centuries did we use scripture to justify slavery, right? And not just in the South, you know, uh, a year after the Emancipation Proclamation, the Episcopal Bishop of Vermont, that's Bernie Sanders state, okay? Uh, the Episcopal Bishop of Vermont wrote an entire book justifying, um, using scripture to justify slavery a year after the Emancipation Proclamation. So uh, if, if you start allowing people to say, this, this is a burden on my religion, then where does it end? Does, does the clerk, who still think that uh, interracial marriages are not good or moral um, and are, are prohibited in scripture, uh, should they be denied uh, marriage licenses? Um, uh, what about um, uh, a Roman Catholic hospital? Um, does a Roman Catholic hospital's ER uh, have to treat uh, a gay man who comes in injured? Or uh, dispense AIDS medications or whatever? I mean, there's just kind of no end to it once you, uh, once you let the, the nose of the camel under the tent. So uh, that's kind of where the, the, the struggle is for right now. And the last thing I'll say, and then i just open it up for questions, uh, lots of people, th- um, including lots of gay people, especially urban gay people, um, believe that we're done. That we're all, everything is all taken care of now. We've got marriage and, and uh, everything is good. The fact of the matter is, in a substantial majority of states, there are no protections Uh, for gay or lesbian, bisexual or transgender people. You literally can get married on Saturday, your wedding announcement appears on Sunday, and on Monday you can get fired from your job for being gay um, with no recourse in the courts. Or you can be denied a room uh, on your honeymoon. Or you can get home from your honeymoon and find out that you have been thrown out of your apartment. And you have no recourse in the courts. And that's in over 30 states. So um, we've still got a long way to go. We have, we have come a long way, and we I we are grateful for that. But um, it won't be over and, until we really do have equality. Um, and um, and the religious right is doing everything everything they can to uh, impede that. So um, just uh, questions about that, or uh, anything else, you know, like the state of the church or. <laughs> What I think about the new uh, presiding bishop, I love him. <laughs> Got that settled. Uh, questions? Yeah. Are you Carol. Seeing, are you seeing or have you seen money from the religious right going into the recent ruckus? The ruckus, ruckus the state it always feels like we're still fighting Roe v. Wade every time Planned Parenthood comes up. Uh, we are still fighting Roe v. Wade. Right. Right. Uh, Yes, I will. So the question was uh is some of that uh conservative religious uh money uh, going uh into the effort to defund Planned Parenthood and you know are we um are we relitigating Roe v. Wade? Yes, we are and I uh you know pay attention because um uh w- There are people who would uh, obviously like to see that overturned. And we have an ever-increasing number of women who have never known what it's like for abortion to be uh, illegal uh, or to have known someone who died from an illegal abortion or had to uh, go out of the country or whatever. Um, um, You may be interested to know what the Episcopal Church's official position is on abortion. Um, not that you're bound by it, that's not how our church works, but it, you might find it instructive, because first of all, our, our uh, stance on abortion is very Anglican, and I think, uh, kind of right on target, um. What I mean by very Anglican is, uh, you know, we Anglicans like to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, somewhere like in the middle. Uh, we like that. And uh, actually, uh, generally speaking, I think that serves us well. Um, uh, so our latest and, and therefore the still standing uh, opinion about abortion is, it is a very serious thing, right? It's not like removing a mole, it is very much more serious. There are moral issues involved. There are questions to be asked. Um, there are uh, many thoughtful discussions to be had with one's uh, priest and and, uh, and others. And at the same time, you know, the definition of maturity is actually being able to hold two conflicting notions at the same time. It's, that's why I think uh, I always say that being an Episcopalian, it's like... Um, uh, advanced placement religion, <laughs> right? You, it it just really asks you to be an adult. So the other the other side of that is, is that uh, that is a decision uh, for a woman uh, and her doctor to make, and uh, there should be no abridgment of her right uh, to make that decision. So both things, it's it it's uh, uh, not a frivolous matter, uh, and. Um, it, it is the women's right to choose, so th- that's kind of the official uh, stance of the Episcopal Church, um, which, um, like I say, I think is is very very grown up. So um, we do see uh, both in terms of money and in terms of energy and and people um, uh, coalescing around similar things, right? And so uh, yeah, there's a lot of of um, of money. Uh, circulating, and it, it, it's interesting. There is this sort of what I would, I guess, call an unholy alliance uh, between conservative um, uh, conservative evangelicals and um, at least the Roman Catholic hierarchy, right? Uh, not necessarily the Roman Catholics in the pews. Uh, we we know, at least for American Catholics, uh, pretty much most of what they believe is in in uh, quite a uh, dire contrast to uh, what is taught or uh, what is espoused by the, by the hierarchy. Uh, but there is that kind of um, uh, unholy alliance. The, 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 the thing that makes this uh, really tough is that the Roman Catholics own so many hospitals. So it gets really uh, mixed up uh, around health care and, and so on. And, and why these RFRA laws... Um, let me tell you another a place where this gets worked out and this, is, this I think is a gray area I have an opinion about how it should be worked out but here's the gray area uh, it's very clear although uh, uh, much of the public campaigns by the religious right would, would try to confuse you about this it is clear for instance in the marriage equality um, uh, uh, court decision no one of any faith uh, will be required to officiate Uh, At such a ceremony, or to bless such a relationship, that is absolutely sacrosanct. And and um, there's a a lot of fear mongering about how you know. Okay, so what's going to happen next is they're going to make your priest, your rabbi, your what you know, against his or her will, um, uh, officiate at one of these services. That's 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 crazy. That's settled. Um. what is not settled and what is a, a, a gray area is what about religious institutions that hire people for non-religious tasks, right? So when in my diocesan office, when we uh, advertised uh, for, to fill a position for our receptionist, um, we were quite explicit. That you didn't have to be Episcopalian, neither did you have to be Christian for that matter. All you had to to do was to be willing to conduct your work in uh, in a way that was consistent with the values that we proposed. But there was nothing in her position uh, or his position uh, that would mandate um, that that be a religious person, never mind uh, our uh, kind of religion. Uh, but but that is really up for grabs. So um, so when a conservative evangelical church hires a janitor, they want to be able to fire that person if they're gay. I mean, this is mostly at least for the moment around the LGBT community. Um, and so so my preference, obviously, would be that uh, you hold you hold up the the religious freedom. Uh, the freedom exercise uh, clause of the constitution when it comes to practicing your religion and operating within the institution for religious things but uh, if you don't need uh, a religion degree or a particular faith to sweep the floors then that employee ought to be covered by all of the uh, anti-discrimination laws that are already in place Uh, but that is far from settled far from settled Um, as a lot of people have discovered when they got fired. Yes? So um, uh, so I think it's very clear why this seismic change has happened. Uh, and, and that is for one reason only, is that so many of us have come out. Right? So Harvey Milk, back in the, in the 70s, said uh, to his people, you have to come out. Because once they know us, they'll love us. Right? <laughs> because we're just so adorable. Right? <laughs> Well, maybe some of us aren't adorable, but uh, but all of the studies show that those who know someone, uh, gay or lesbian, bisexual or transgender, uh, will will be more affirming, more accepting uh, on this issue. We know that just from all kinds of studies. Um, and, and why, um, as I was saying before, the, the uh, LGBT work has been going on for many, many years. But what happened in the 90s is that uh, we shifted from most Americans being able to say that they didn't know anyone gay or lesbian. Um, now, you know, they they would probably tell you they just love those two ladies that live together at the end of the street, you know, and they keep their yard so nice. We just love them. Uh, but what they would have meant is that they didn't know anyone uh, who would um, uh, proudly and and casually even uh, tell you that they were gay or lesbian. And... In the 90s, that shift happened where now, I mean, really, is there a family left that doesn't know some family member, uh, some coworker, some former classmate uh, to be gay or lesbian? And increasingly, you know, you have people going back to their college reunions and uh, Jack is now Jackie. I mean, even transgender people are becoming uh, more known to us. But because their numbers are even smaller uh, than the gay and lesbian community, it, it's, it's going to take a while for that same shift to happen where um, uh, most of us don't know to most of us do know someone who is transgender. But that is, that is the reason it occurred. Now, th- there are a lot of people, and I would say... Uh, uh, Unfortunately, this is, this is true of urban um, gay and lesbian people as well. Uh, there are a lot of people who would say, look, let's just wait for the old people to die off, right? Well, as an old person, I don't uh, like that much. <laughs> um, but, but here's the thing. Um, as much progress as we have made, and as um, uh, uh, sort of undifficult it is to live in Washington or New York or... Or uh, L.A. Or well, it used to be Houston. Um, is uh, e- even s- even some of them just say, "Look, let's just let's just wait for them to die off." Here's the problem, though. I, we still got kids jumping off bridges and hanging themselves on on uh, playground swing sets. And um, honestly, uh, life as a as a 14 year old boy in who knows what Idaho is not all that different than my growing up in Kentucky in the 1950s, so um, on the one hand yes i think I think when uh, my generation and others die off, uh, we will be left with um, um, we will be left with a population who is just uh, quite naturally uh, more accepting but i 'm not willing to to wait because. Uh, There are an awful lot of people who are in an awful lot of pain uh, at the moment. Do I think it's because the younger generation is less church? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, And I'll say there are two reasons. I think the reason they are that way is that uh, they have never not known LGBT people. Most of them have uh, gay and lesbian friends. And they know when the church tries to tell them really bad things about them, they know that it's not true because they know them. They know it's not true. And so uh, what it's, what it's uh, forcing them to do is, uh, some of them, is to leave their religion. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not. You know, uh, there for a while, the evangelical churches were just growing like crazy. And you had all these mega churches. And everything. At the moment, and for the last couple of three years, they are hemorrhaging members. And the number one reason people are leaving is their attitudes towards LGBT people. Because now they know, they know some LGBT people. And they know that what the church is saying about them is simply not true. So, so rather than the church being the reason they feel this way, um, I think the, the fact that they feel this way is the reason they're leaving the church. Uh, one church or another. Yes. About, and that relates to the thing I was saying this morning about people, people come to church uh, looking for God and, and what we give them is church instead or give them religion instead um that's that's the other reason i think they're leaving on your yeah Yeah, so I th- I think there's some you know there's some gray area there, and and it's it's why we need to have uh, calm uh, as calm as we can muster debates about this because uh, you know we live in very very complicated times. Um, I I do think that uh, uh, it's not exactly what you're saying, but I do think these um, states like Texas, like uh, Alabama, Mississippi who are passing laws that uh, virtually force the closure of every institution that provides an abortion um, is, um, is not what we want. It seems to me that is an underhanded way of abridging someone's legal rights. Um, but, but I do think um, the question of whether a Roman Catholic hospital... Uh, should allow abortions to be done in its facility? I think, th- I think that's a tough question. Um, I don't... Um, uh, what was the other, uh, besides abortion, you mentioned? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way those laws are written, uh, uh, there is nothing mandatory about them. So at the moment, the way those laws are written in the five states that have them, including now California... Um, there's nothing mandatory about a, a doctor having to do that. It's the, um, uh, the person who's dying has that option if they so choose. And then they find a, a facility that, that... Yeah, so I... No, I would be opposed to that being a mandatory thing. Yeah, live free or die, yeah. Um, Could you all hear the question? Yeah. Uh, It was hard. (laughs) It was really hard. Um, I mean, there were several hard things about it. One was uh, the nearly daily death threats for... um, mm, Two years are a little better. Uh, And as recent as, uh, you know, the uh, uh, president-elect Obama invited me to uh, deliver the uh, invocation at the opening inaugural event at the Lincoln Memorial. And about two weeks later, I I think probably because of the publicity around that, uh, we got a call from the Vermont State Police that they had um, just arrested a guy in their little town, who had come through their town in such a rage that he shot the windows out of an empty, parked police cruiser. And when they caught up to him, on his passenger seat, right next to him, he had um, uh, pictures off the Internet of me and my husband, Mark. Uh, He had MapQuest maps to our house, to our exact house. And he had a sawed-off shotgun with uh, tons of ammunition. And so they're on the phone saying, we're pretty sure this guy was on his way to blow your head off. Okay, so that was hard. (laughs) Right? Uh, And, you know, pretty early on, uh, uh, we had to make a decision. You know, um, 2003 was also when the abortion doctor in, I think it was Syracuse, was shot through his kitchen window. We lived in a... uh, wood and glass contemporary house and there was maybe you know the two bathrooms were about the only place that uh, we wouldn't have been shot couldn't have been shot through a window and so we well, I mean we had this discussion like you know uh, we don't we didn't you know we lived in the country in the woods and uh, part of what we loved about the house was that it kind of brought the woods indoors right so we were like okay so should we go out and buy a dozen sheets and just cover all the windows and we just decided that um if we did that um they win, and that um we felt like we were doing the right thing, and that God was calling us to this, and so uh as much as possible, we were not going to change our lives um, um another really um um odd thing uh and and a little bit hard, is um, I began to lead this uh, bifurcated life in New Hampshire. Nobody cared that I was gay. I mean, they elected me after all, right? And I had been the assistant to my predecessor for 18 years. I'd been in every one of their parishes and so on and so forth. And no, I didn't come in and talk about being gay all the time. And so um, they, they just elected me for me, I guess. And uh, they only got kind of feisty when the rest of the world told them that they shouldn't have elected me. That's where the live for your die thing came in. They they were like, Well don't think you're gonna tell us who to elect bishop. And they had already decided that if the convention had not consented to my election, they were going to re elect me. That was you know, that was what we were gonna do if the consent didn't come through. Um uh so but but the odd thing is, so the people in New Hampshire had no idea what my life was like when I left New Hampshire, right? Uh, where, you know, I was this this thing, this uh, thing, <laughs> this phenomenon. And, uh, and people outside of New Hampshire couldn't imagine how normal my life was in New Hampshire and how little time I gave to any of this. Uh, I'll never forget... Um, uh, the uh, religion reporter for the New York Times, uh, Laurie Goodstein, came up to, to do a feature article. I mean, follow followed me around for two or three days. And on the, my visitation that morning, we were in a little church in West Claremont, New Hampshire. I mean, you can't find it if you're looking for it. It is just so hidden away. Um, uh, old, old, old church. I think it's the oldest, second oldest church in the, in the diocese. And we get there, we come in the back door and the choir's rehearsing and everything and people sort of go like that and then go back to rehearsing and blah, blah, blah. And she turns to me and she says, don't they know who you are? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they... I'm just the bishop. I'm I'm really, I'm just the bishop. And so I sort of lived in these two different worlds, right? Um, and, and I... I I think the normalcy of just being a bishop, in, I, I mean, as normal as that gets. I, I get that, that's, that that would strain some people's definition of normal to begin with. Um, never mind this morning's uh, scripture about wearing fancy robes and sitting in important places. Um, I think that's, that's what allowed me to do the other, the other part. The other thing I have to tell you is that um, uh, um, what I've become convinced of, that I kind of knew with my head but didn't know with my heart until all that happened, is that um, when you do justice work, um, you get to know God better. If you want to meet God and know God better, get involved in justice work. And you will take grief for it, and you will be criticized for it, I mean, I tell my deacons when I uh, ordain them, I want you to get into some gospel trouble. And if you're not in trouble because of your faith, is it really the gospel you're preaching? Is it really the gospel you're living? That's this whole, this whole um, temptation uh, for those of us who are in the church to have an affair with a mistress called respectability, right? And, uh, and if you go to uh, a fancy-schmancy church like St. John's Lafayette Square, um, respectability, you know, is pretty high on the, on the value list. <laughs> and and it's, there's nothing wrong with being respectable uh, unless it takes you away from, makes you fearful of, doing the countercultural work that I think the gospel is clear Jesus calls us to.